At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got, I think, a really important and really well put together show for you today. I'm thrilled to have with me a couple of real experts on the topic of signaling and the new, what used to be called the supplemental application for ERAS. I think for anyone who is involved in any way in anesthesia applications, that is certainly medical students who are applying, it's advisors who are advising medical students who are applying, program directors, clerkship directors, anybody involved in this process, deans at medical schools who are involved in advising students, this is going to be really important because it's gotten complex and we really want students and their advisors to know what's going on with signaling and with the quote unquote supplemental application in anesthesiology for this coming year and probably for years to come. So I've got with me a couple of real experts on this. First, Dr. Andrea Dutoit, who is an associate professor of pediatric cardiac anesthesiology at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, where she is also the program director for the core residency program there. And then Dr. Emily Teeter, who is an associate professor of cardiac anesthesia at UNC, University of North Carolina, and she is one of the associate program directors there. And so the both of them have done an incredible job at putting together a lot of information on this to share with applicants, and they've done a lot of research and worked closely with ERAS and other organizations to make sure we know what we need to pass on. So I'm really thrilled, and I also want to say a big thank you to the American Society of Anesthesiology Medical Student Component. They polled their membership and put together a bunch of questions uh, of what students are wondering about this topic. And so we have addressed those questions here. And of course, if people have additional questions, they can put them uh, as comments on the website. That's acrac.com. And we will do our best to respond to those as well. All right, Andrea and Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Jed. Yeah, glad to be here so I can help out. Awesome. All right. So again, we're going to talk about the upcoming ERAS application cycle in anesthesiology residency and the program signaling geographic preferences. And again, what used to be called the ERAS supplemental application, although as you all will tell us, that's really been wrapped into the general application now. So let's start with the, I think, most salient question that's on people's minds. What is program signaling and why was it brought to anesthesiology? Because as we know, a few years ago, it didn't exist. So tell us a little bit about that. Emily, why don't we start with you? Sure. Thanks, Jed. So first of all, it's really important to understand and appreciate the greater context and background of our field. Um, As many medical students and advisors know, anesthesiology has gotten extremely competitive and completely filled our spots last year. Um, If you're looking at it from the applicant perspective, over the past decade, 
the average number of applications that each um, medical student completed has climbed to over 65 applications per applicant. So to give you a perspective, just five years ago, this was closer to 34. So we've nearly doubled the number of applications that our medical students and other applicants are filling out. And from the program standpoint, we're getting on average 1,400 applications per year. And again, the historical perspective here is that five years ago, this was 900, so increased by over 50%. So you would think that perhaps this is helping the match rates, but it is not. Our, our match rate has been stable. And the result of this is that um, programs have to find a way to filter through this giant sea of applications, and they're using metrics like step scores, clerkship grades, and the reputation of medical schools to do this. And unfortunately, as we know, that would not necessarily identify the best resident for their program. Resi residency applicants are applying to programs that they may not necessarily be interested in just because they are uh, understandably afraid of not getting enough interviews or not matching. On both sides, this is creating a lot of work for the programs, as well as a lot of stress and cost, and it makes it difficult for applicants and programs to determine whether or not they are well aligned. What we were looking for was a sort of reliable system for communicating applicant preferences to residency programs. So in 2020, um, together with a variety of specialties and programs and medical schools and advisors, the AAMC developed the supplemental ERAS application. And the goal here was to help applicants share more details about themselves, their experiences and their preferences with programs in a more structured manner. We were hoping to facilitate a more holistic review and improve the application screening process so that we can find applicants who are genuinely interested in our programs and whose interested, interests and experiences align with the program setting, the mission, and the goals. So long story short, as part of this uh, program signaling began with a few specialties like dermatology and general surgery. And what this is, is a system where applicants can indicate a genuine interest in a program at the time of application. So all, applica all applicants within a given field receive the same number, same limited number of program signals, and they can choose where to send these, and programs can use these to figure out which applicants are highly interested in their program amidst the giant sea of applications that we already talked about. So this allows interested applicants to stand out and creates a more level playing field for visibility of applicants. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. So when we think about what's different in this upcoming cycle, Emily, compared to what we saw last year, tell us a little bit about that. What do applicants need to have in mind uh, in terms of changes that they're going to see? Right. So in the past year, there was a, actually a separate supplemental ERAS application and this year it has become integrated into the main ERAS application. So the three main components of the supplemental application are program signaling, geographic preferences, and a revised experiences section. Great, all right, so Andrea, let's turn to you. How many signals will applicants get and how was this decided and how does it compare to last year? Um, so this year, um, each applicant will get a total of 15 signals um, that are going to be divided up into gold signals and 
five gold signals and 10 silver signals. Gold signals are meant to indicate highest interest in a program. And the silver signals are really meant to in indicate like very high interest or like kind of secondary interest. Um, this tiered signal system was trialed by um, OB Guyan last year in their applicant pool and was felt to be very successful by the program directors and the applicants. Um, last year, anesthesiology applicants only had five program signals. And when anesthesiology program directors and applicants were surveyed, um, half of applicants and program directors felt like there were too few signals. Um, and, and program signals, if you look at it, they weren't distributed equally across programs. 10% of programs received more than... Um, 20% of all the signals sent by applicants, which means that some programs didn't want any more signals because they had plenty and some programs wanted more. Um, so when the Association of Anesthesiology Corps Program Directors was tasked with determining if there would be a change in the program signaling numbers, they took that information into um, consideration along with some feedback and decided that the tiered system would potentially satisfy both. You still have five gold signals um, that remain the same as last year. And then programs that receive fewer signals um, would still have an opportunity to get that silver signal um, next year. Um, it was also felt that applicants would um, have less difficulty deciding on what their top 15 programs would be instead of just top five. Um, and the choice to expand was made using a lot of data and consideration about what, what would work hopefully for the largest number of applicants and programs, understanding that there's a wide variety of situations that we had to consider. Right. Now, Andrea, there may be both applicants and programs out there who are wondering, do I have to do this? Am I obligated to participate in this system? So what's the answer to that? So the simple answer is no. Um, both programs and applicants get to decide whether to participate in signaling, even as a part of the as it's wrapped into the uh, ARIS application. Last year, however, 97% of programs participated and 95% of applicants sent signals. And of the applicants who participated, the mean number of signals sent was 4.97, meaning that almost everybody used all five of their signals. Okay. Now, Emily, maybe a more important question is not necessarily must I participate, but should I? So what is the recommendation? Should applicants participate in this? Are there downsides to signaling? What do we tell people? The short answer to this, I would say, is yes. There are definitely benefits to participating in program signaling. So first of all, it gives an applicant, no matter how competitive they are, a chance to highlight their interest in a program. When we asked the program directors, they said that 90% use the program signals in looking at the applications. And the data from the first year of the supplemental applications has showed us that signaling allowed for us to look at applicants that we otherwise may not have interviewed or may not have reviewed. And in terms of downsides, there are no real downsides to signaling, even if you change your mind after you've submitted your signals about which programs are at the top of your list. So um, maybe one downside would be that with signaling, applications to programs that are not signaled will be considered less than before. So in other words, if a program knows they are not in your top 15, you may be less likely to get an interview with them. Um, but it still allows you to signal more programs and to be highly considered by programs that otherwise may not have taken a look at your application. Yeah, and I, I would just emphasize that again. I mean, I think it would be a huge mistake not to do signaling for an applicant, especially now that there's going to be a 15 signals per applicant. I think that if you didn't use signals, you would be very unlikely to get maybe any interviews. So I think it is if there's one message, I would say do not let anybody tell you not to use signals. I think that's a really, really important point. 
Um, all right, let's look at some of the data. So Andrea, what did we learn from last year's match data in regards to pro program signaling? How did programs use signals, for example? So we have had a lot of interest about um, the data and what signaling and how it affected both interviews and match. Um, but as of right now, there is no data set that correlates program signaling to match results. And that's because ARIS developed the signaling to be used in interview selection. Um, and NRMP really owns the match data, right? So those two things don't necessarily talk to each other. We are hoping to collect this data soon and utilize it going forward as we implement program signaling in future years, but it's a hard piece of data to connect the dots. Um, as we just said, you know, programs are meant to use signals to identify highly applicant, highly interested applicants for their program to determine who to interview. Um, signals were not developed and shouldn't really be utilized to determine rank order lists since opinions after interviews can change widely. And that was Eris's purpose. Um, when we look at the program director um, results from that were conducted by Eris for their survey after the supplemental application, more than 85% of programs felt signals were important or very important to use as a screening tool before a more thorough application review. And as a part of the process to help decide who to interview. Um, and they used it as a tiebreaker when deciding who to interview. So that kind of goes back to your comment about like, you don't have to participate and it's not forced, but there's some real advantages to participating. Um, Despite ARIS guidelines last year, um, there was some reporting where program signals were used as a part of rank order list discussions, um, but it was a much less important factor because the people knew that it was submitted in September and not a result of the interview process. Right. So I think a lot of people wonder, is there a chance I'd get an interview at a program that I don't signal? Emily, what do we want to tell people about that? Yeah, I don't think that we have this data yet since we've changed the number of signals this year, but um, I would say almost almost definitely the, the chances are going to be very low. So if you do not signal a program, and again, like we talked about earlier, if they know they're, they're not in your top 15, I think it's highly unlikely that they would offer you an interview, particularly for very competitive programs. But I guess it is, it is possible. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think it's possible, but unlikely. Um, and so this is going to be super important. I've been telling our students that unlike in, in prior years before signaling, one of the most important pieces of the work they need to do now is actually just deciding which 15 programs to signal leading up to their applications because it's going to play such a huge role here. All right. So how should applicants think about using their signals? Let's say we've convinced them they should use them. Now they want to think, how do I distribute them? Andrea, what advice do we have for them? So, um, I think the best advice is that program signals should be sent to the programs that an applicant is most interested in attending. Um, there truly is no real like way to game this system, right? Think about where you want to train and send those programs that you're most interested in a gold signal, right? After those top five are selected, I am absolutely sure, because we've all been through this process, that there will be close runners up and programs that you wanted in the top five, but you just that differentiation was hard. And that's why there are silver signals. Um, applicants, there's no right answer to this. Applicants are strongly encouraged to like consider their personal values and goals in training, where they want to go, explore residency programs, talk with current residents, consult advisors, whatever's helpful in identifying where they want to train. And that's that's such an individualized decision that there's no like 
one way to tell people like where to apply. We understand the uncertainty and that like anxiety in this process. How do you know which place to signal? Like, right, am I competitive for that program? There's no one that truly can decide for each person. What are your priorities? Where do you want out of training? What are the most important thing in a training program? What size program? Those are all like important factors that each individual has to consider. In terms of the data and what the data shows us, um, ARIS um, data from applicants last year showed that 62% of their uh, applicants chose signals based on geographic location. Um, and 53% of those chose, chose them based on proximity to family friends. Um, so the data also shows that 66% of applicants from last year agreed or strongly agreed that their program signals reflected their true preferences at the time of application. So we really are trying to make sure that this isn't not what the applicants want, that this is matching up with their um, desires and needs for training, as well as optimize the selections process. Yeah, I think that's all great advice. At the same time, obviously, there's going to be people who may say, well, you know, I'm being told by my advisors, and, and the advisors are so key here because you do have to get some help to figure out how competitive an applicant you are. And I'm being told I'm not that competitive, but my my the places I wanna train are all these you know kind of super competitive programs. And so that, that may not line up. So Emily, what do we kind of wanna tell people about how to think about reach programs and trying to match up their competitiveness with where they're applying? Yeah, this is a very individualized decision, and this is something that is not a one-size-fits-all approach. However, the advantage of signaling is that if you have a dream of training at a particular institution, even if it is a quote-unquote reach program for you, this helps you be visible to these programs amidst thousands of applications. But I would caution, and I tell our students to keep in mind that it may be worthwhile to apply to a variety of programs in order to maximize your chances. So it's it's highly important to be connected with a good advisor who can look at your application and take into account all these factors. Yeah, I can't emphasize that enough. You really, I think it would be, let's be clear, you are not guaranteed an interview just because you send a signal, even a gold signal. And so, I mean, let's just take the kind of extreme example here. Let's say you passed step one, and then on step two, you got a 198 and you so you passed but you got a, your score is a 198 and you know you're coming from a you know reasonable medical school but you don't have any first author publications and you don't have any major leadership uh experiences and you've got you know reasonable letters and you've written a decent personal statement you're if you say i'm going to apply to you know the top 15 programs in the country now i don't know what those are but let's just say that you you think you've applied to them uh, that might be a huge mistake. In fact, I would say it probably is. I mean, I'm sorry, when I say apply, I mean signal. You're going to signal these top, whatever you think, the top 15 most competitive programs in the country. I think you might end up with no interviews, and that would be really a shame. So I think you you really need to, as you said, Emily, you need to talk to your advisor and say, be honest with me, how competitive am I in this field? And you know, if you want to take a couple, I mean, I think it's perfectly reasonable. One of the advantages of having 15 signals is you may say, I'm going to take a couple of my gold and a couple of or a few of my silver, and I am going to shoot for those super competitive programs because, as you said, Emily – even if I'm not that competitive, I, I maybe I stand out just by virtue of having given the signal, but I know I'm, I'm unlikely to get those interviews. So I'm going to make sure I spend the rest of my signals at places that I are, think I'm more likely to get an interview. On the other hand, if you got 260 on step two and you have five first author publications and a PhD and you have you know, been the president of every group you've ever been a part of, and you're, you know, at a top medical school, and you are, you know, everybody's raving about you, uh, you know, you can probably apply to whatever 15 programs you want, and you're going to probably get 15 interviews. 
So you, and then there's everybody in between on that spectrum. So this is what we need advisors to really help people think through. Let's, Andrea, let's say that somebody signals a program and then they change their mind and decide they're not really interested. What, what advice do we have for people who are in that situation? So once you, uh, signals are a part of your ARIS application and those are due in September. And once those go in, there's no way to change your program signals. You can't meet somebody in the month of October and say, oh my gosh, I didn't signal your program. I want to signal your program, right? But bottom line is you don't have to reach out to the program and say, I'm really not interested in you anymore. Um, Now, if you find a program in that interim that you're like, oh my gosh, I'm passionate about it. Like, right. You can, you can reach out, you know, if you so if a program sends you an interview and you're not interested anymore, you can decline that, right? I think the 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 disadvantage is when you find out in that narrow time of a place that you're interested in, you would have wanted, and you can consider reaching out to that program directly. Um, this whole process was meant to minimize the amount of crazy communications that go on in the background during application season from applicants to program directors. It's meant to give a more unified. Um, all access ability to identify us to each other. So I, I don't, you know, that's one option, but there's no way to change it. You don't have to, there's no way to let go back and change your ARIS signals once you've submitted them. Yeah. And, you know, I think we as program directors, we all get these emails. Traditionally, we've gotten these emails saying, you know, oh, I didn't get an interview at your program, but you're, you're really one of my top programs and I really would love an interview. And I think that's going to be much less valuable moving forward because you will, if you didn't signal a program at all, it's going to be very hard for you to make the case that they're one of your top programs when they weren't even in your top 15 to start with. It's not that that couldn't happen, but it's going to be hard to convince a program director that that happened, right? They, they went from being 16 or, or worse on your list to now being one of the top most interested ones. And so, you know, you hopefully by doing your due diligence, looking at websites, looking at social media, talking to people from those programs, asking around you should be able to gather information, hopefully, to give you an idea really of where your top 15 most desired places are. And I think, as you said, you can't you can't change it. If you can always send the emails, I think it's 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 going to be a lot harder for those to produce much in the way of getting you an interview. Would you agree with that, Andrew? I would agree. I mean, I think there is that small like little band of people that like you're going to find out some piece of information that wildly changes your mind. And I think that that is valuable for us as program directors to keep an open mind about because um, we all know that when you're a fourth year medical student, you don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. You're not expected to have all the pieces of the puzzle. So I think that's still like something we've got to keep our eyes open for um, and not exclude. Like you're going to apply to more than 15 programs and there are going to be programs that interview beyond signals. Um as a matter of necessity um, because of their size or location or something like that. So still be an advocate for yourself is I think great, um, I guess, recommendations for applicants. Yeah. And I would add, you know, if you're going to send the email, just saying, you know, Oh, Dr. Dutoit, I, you're one of my top programs. I'd really love an interview is probably not sufficient. But if you said, you know, I know I didn't send you a signal. Here's why, you know, I didn't, I don't live near you. I didn't know much about your program. And it wasn't until after signals were due that I actually worked with one of your residents and I learned a lot more about your program. And now I wish I had sent you a signal. And if I could go back, I would. That's a much different email. And while it might not work, it's much more likely to work than the one that just says, you're one of my top programs. I'd love an interview. So, you know, I, I think do more in terms of discussion and and dis, and telling the program, if you're going to send an email, why you didn't signal them and why you now have changed your mind. I totally agree. Right. All right. Emily, a lot of applicants wonder, do they need to use a signal on their home institution or on an institution where they did a visiting rotation? 
The answer is yes. With the increase to 15 signals, it is both ERAS and the Association of Anesthesiology Core Program Directors Council's recommendation for programs to require applicants to signal home or visiting programs. And this may be somewhat confusing to applicants because last year we did not clearly define this as a specialty and the programs were given the option of deciding whether or not they should require home students or visiting students to, to signal them. And I think this was well-intentioned. We didn't want them to quote unquote waste a signal on a program, um, I, but it also made things unclear for the applicants. And as you can imagine, gives an advantage to applicants who have a home program, who are from an academic institution, or maybe have the means to do visiting rotations. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, I think, a nice clear cut advice. You should signal your home program. I will say, you know, if you're wondering, well, what about, do I do gold? Do I do silver? I think you really should ask. So I would highly encourage people if they have a home, a home program and they're interested in that home program to at, either just send a gold signal, which is clear cut, or if you're wondering, then ask the program director. I'm really interested. You're definitely one of my top programs. Do you, does it matter to you whether I do a gold or a silver signal? I'm just trying to figure out how to use my signals. I don't think anyone's going to take that badly, though I can't speak for everybody, but I would imagine people will understand that question and, you know, they may give you some guidance on that. If in the absence of that, if you're significantly interested in your home program, the best advice is just send them a gold signal because you don't want to take any chances. But I think most of the time, the best way is to ask the program director. Yeah. All right. It, it, all, Jack, Go it also just goes back to like, I know there's, it's confusing and anxiety producing, but like try to use your gold signals on the places you are most interested in, in going to. It's not a game. It's not like a, like, Oh, if I play it this way on this one program and this way on this one program, really just deep down in your heart, you have to just decide and do it for you. That's what it's, it's meant to benefit you when you do that. If you try to play a game, it, it might get messy. Yep, that's yeah, great advice. Although our, as we know, our medical students are are prone to overthinking, as we all are. So it's it's tough advice, but believe us. Yes. Yeah. No, I think it's important advice. All right, Andrea, let's move on to a different element of the new application. What is geographic program signaling, and how, or sorry, geographic preference signaling, and how does that work? So the geographic preference signaling um, is another opportunity to give applicants a means to communicate their preference or lack of preference, right, um, for training in particular geographic areas. Um, so as it's uh, included uh, this year, and it's about, it's very similar, it's just kind of rolled into the same application this year, but each applicant gets the opportunity to signal up to three geographic regions out of nine total U.S. Bureau of Census uh, regions that were determined by IRS. Now, Emily, this is, I think, a pretty complicated piece of this, but important for applicants to know. Can programs see if they don't signal that program's geographic region? Okay, so I'm going to break this down from what we see on the program side. I'm in North Carolina, so I'm in the Southeast region. And if an applicant chooses Southeast, so if they geographic signal the Southeast region, I can see that they've chosen my region. It shows up that they have selected my division and they can include an explanation of why they're interested. Perhaps they have family in the area. However, I cannot see what the other two areas are that they signaled. If the applicant chooses no preference, which means they're not choosing divisions, they're willing to train anywhere, they can put a little discussion or a little explanation next to that, I will see no preference. But if the applicant does participate, 
but does not choose the Southeast. So they chose three other regions. The, the preference section for me will be blank on the program view. So it, but that's even that it sounds negative. It's not supposed to be a negative. This whole system was set up to be a positive to determine alignment. So if I see a, an applicant that has signaled my region, I should consider that a positive, but the lack thereof should not be seen as a negative by us. Right. So I think the real question here is, Andrea, should people use geographic signaling? And because it's not quite as easy as yes, no, as Emily laid out, is there, if you're trying to decide between signaling three regions or up to three regions or doing the no preference or not signaling at all, what advice can we give? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Hey, folks, this is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having Factor. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly... I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good, but the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc all right and we're back with that advice 
So um, I would say yes. Um, and because again, there's little downside to stating your preferences as an applicant, right? It's not a game. Um, and and you, let's look at some data. So for reference, last year, 95% of anesthesiology applicants completed the geographic preference section, okay? And 81% of them reported at least one division preference and 18% reported no geographic preference. So that's kind of data if you wanna like sit in the milieu and think about what other people are doing in the specialty. Most applicants last year, greater than 85%, indicated a division preference that aligned with their permanent address or medical school division. So when Eris did this, instead of program directors kind of, oh, where are you from and what medical school are you? And I'm going to assume that you want that those are your indicators for where you want to be. This is your opportunity to highlight that. Now, most people, that's actually a truth, right? But the, what this does is allows those 15% or so of people who it's not necessarily their preference to really highlight that preference. Um, and if you look at it, geographic preferences were not distributed evenly amongst the divisions. We know that they're not perfectly distributed for anesthesiology programs at the same nine nine geographic areas for every single specialty. Um, and if you want to look at all the data, this data is on the ARIS website under the 22-23 data tables. Um, for, for people that are looking about like, should they participate and what is the value? 82% of program directors last year in anesthesiology said they use geographic preference information when they were reviewing applications. Um, so I think that that's a, a key. People are utilizing it because we all want people in our programs who want to be there. Yeah. And this just really goes to show you how important it is to understand this because you may think, oh, I don't have a preference, so I'm not going to do it. And that would be not the right way to go about that because you can indicate no preference, which is definitely better than just not doing it because you get to put a little explanation and then programs see that. If you just leave it blank, then programs may think, oh, they did. They signaled other places, just not me and or not my region. So you really want to think through this before just uh, assuming, oh, I don't have a preference, so I don't want to do it. Um, Emily, what do we know about whether geographic signaling actually improved an applicant's chances of getting an interview? I think the short answer is yes. So we did a survey of um, program directors and 28% of anesthesiology PDs viewed applicants with a signal and geographic alignment more favorably than others. And 20% of PDs said that they consider geographic preferences and program signals individually as positive predictors. So again, these things help our applicants. In terms of the interviews, the highest chance of, have, of obtaining an interview was with applicants who sent a program signal and had aligned geographic preferences. If you sent a program signal but indicated no preference, you were still more likely to get an interview than if you had misaligned geographic preferences or did not participate in that. And even if you didn't send a program a signal, the group of applicants who had aligned geographic preferences was more likely to get an interview than those who had no preference or misaligned preferences. So the geographic signal can help you, not as much as the program signal, but it is still a, a helpful piece of information for programs when they're reviewing applications. Right. That, and I think what really stands out there, as you said, is that the best way, your highest chance of an interview is if you both sent a program signal and signal that geographic area that that program's in. So let's follow up on that and really drive that home. If applicants are wondering, do I need to send a geographic preference if I send a program signal preference, how do they work together, Andrea? And, and kind of like Emily just said, right? Um, the answer is yes, that I would signal both. Like really think individually about what the programs and the geographic areas you wanna be, right? And um, 
that is true. Even if you don't have geographic preferences, please like, you know, fill it out and say why um, I appreciated people's messages when they wrote that last year. Again, it's meant to give an applicant a chance to identify where they would prefer to train. If you don't have a preference, you should send that so that I don't look at an applicant from Florida applying to Nebraska and say, you're not going to come live in Nebraska, right? Um, if you see that you don't have a geographic preference and you've self-identified that, then maybe I say, hey, this person's willing to go all over. I'm going to take them up. So it's always helpful to see a preference that you're willing to share with the program. Yeah. And, you know, I get it. I remember, I mean, it's been a lot of years and yet I still remember the pain of filling out ERAS and all the things you had to write and the fatigue. And so I get that you might want to not write as much, but this is not a place you want to skimp. If you click that no preference, put an explanation in, you know, and say it could be as simple as, you know, I am happy to go anywhere in the country. I just want to go to the program that, that I find best for me. That's a lot better than just clicking no preference and not putting an explanation. And then also be careful because I got some applications. So the Southeast is this enormous region, right? That goes everywhere from, I don't know, certainly Maryland and all the way down to Florida. And so you know, I got some that, that had clicked to Southeast, but in the in the explanation, it said, I've got family in Florida and I really want to be there, right? Well, okay, that is clearly not including Maryland is not going to help you to be close to family in Florida. So be aware that what you write in there, it, you know, sh it, unless you, you don't care and you just want to be in Florida, which is fine. But if you want to be appealing to the entire region, you don't want to say anything that limits you to just one state within that region. Yeah, and I saw a lot of those too as well. These regions, you really want to look at the region and how widespread they are and think thoughtfully about um, what you write specifically. And again, like you said, Jed, if that is your preference, that's where you want to be is Florida, that is totally okay to, to put that. That helps, that only helps you as an yep. applicant. Totally, yes, 100%. If that's your goal, then you should definitely put that. Just know that it's unlikely that programs in Maryland are going to interview you because we know you want to be in Florida. Right. Um, Okay, so let's talk about the experiences section. Emily, what is the experiences section on the supplemental application and what is the purpose of it? The past experiences section is intended to help you tell a program which experiences in your life have been most important or most influential to you. And it also allows you to identify qualities that you will contribute to a residency program. It gives us as PDs a more holistic picture of our applicants. Right. And this has significantly changed from where it used to be. And I believe it was just unlimited, right? You could put as many as you wanted, which essentially was useless because programs were unlikely to read through, you know, 50 different experiences. So what do you recommend that people put in the experiences section, Andrea? How should they choose which experiences to include? So um, just like you said, as opposed to unlimited in previous years, now you are limited to 10. And this this might seem really challenging because if you're a person that does a lot of things, right, like research and work and volunteerism and all those things, right, how do I narrow it down to just 10? But the value of it is that you're highlighting the things that are most meaningful to you and it allows programs to align themselves with you and say, oh my gosh, this is this is exactly what we're looking for. Instead of it being a laundry list where we don't like, Jed, you said, like we skim, 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 skim. It's just application overload. So of those 10, you still get to highlight three as your meaningful experiences, which al which allows you to still identify some of those unique characteristics. Um, this, this change is going to probably be a little bit challenging if you think about it, but it's important to kind of like look at what you have valued. Like if I see something that's a leadership experience, but it wasn't very important to you, um, I think 
I might say, oh, this is what defines this person. And you kind of just did it because you had to, right? Like this is your opportunity to show us who you are as an applicant. And I think that's the value in narrowing it down. Um, you know, and uh, again, like I think people have talked about, if one of your 10 experiences is something that's incredibly minuscule and less involved, you want to really think about that. Like, cause we're going to take these as like, these were your meaningful experience. These were important to you. <laughs> right. hundred percent. All right. Emily, I think a lot of people are wondering, how can they stand out to programs? Let's say that they signaled a program and they don't hear back. Is there anything they can do? Should they email the program? What advice do you have for them? Right. So as we've said, the absolute best way to stand out to a program is to send them a signal. And we can't emphasize that enough. But certainly there are situations where applicants don't hear back from a program um, I think that this is where advising, again, plays a big role. So knowing when to reach out and how to reach out to programs. Um, I, but I tell our students, if they don't hear back from a program, it's reasonable to reach out to them. And if you do, if you want to do so, do it on the earlier side and maybe not the day the applications come out or two weeks later. But you certainly don't want it to be too late where they've already offered their interviews. And if you're going to reach out to a program, just keep in mind, um, we do get hundreds, if not thousands of emails. So make sure that your email is relatively brief. Like Jed said, um, state some specific reasons why you're interested in the program. A little flattery or a little knowledge of the program never hurts. Make sure you address it correctly to the program director or the coordinator. And then other ways to stand out would be to attend the virtual open houses, reach out to the residents, um, be part of some of these virtual events that programs are offering now. But for sure, the best way is to signal the program. Yeah. And a couple of key points you made there. One is it's got to be personal. So, you know, the, the, when we get those emails that don't even say, dear Dr. Wolpontop, they just say, you know, they just start talking. So clearly this is just a form a, a, that was copied and pasted to every program director around, right? Because it does, didn't even bother to mention the program director's name or the institution's name. It just it just started talking. So clearly this is not appealing and is not going to be looked at. Also, I think emails that are, you know, three or four pages long, regurgitating the entire CV and the entire personal statement, not not useful and, and really unlikely to be looked at carefully. And then emails that have spelling errors, grammatical mistakes, right? You have to, hopefully everybody knows, but certainly let me remind you that any communication is part of your application. And if you show that you didn't really put much thought into this and you didn't really spell check it or grammatical check it or have someone read it over, that's going to probably hurt you. So you want to be very careful if you choose to do this. If you're going to tell someone you're really interested in their program and give them some good reasons why, you should show that you've put a good amount of time into preparing what you're writing. So I think that's really key too. Um, I, think, I think the yeah. other thing to mention as a part of that conversation, though, Jed, is that because a program director does not respond to you or is delayed or something does not signal no interest. It, it's it's a reflection of how busy sometimes we are during this period of time, right? And so I think that that's important to like, if you don't hear back, it's not because we hated you and we didn't like you had a horrible communication. It's because we're just so busy. You might that you might have just gotten then put into the shuffle or we do other things with that information. But it's important to understand that you might not hear back from every person you reach out to. Right. That's, and actually, I would caution applicants against reaching out, especially on a very frequent basis. If you don't hear back, give them some time and, and really think twice about maybe repetitively reaching out because that may send the wrong impression. Totally agree with that. And, you know, again, I, I think your point, Andrea, is so well taken, which is that it feels, I remember this, it feels so personal, right? But it's not. I mean, we are getting hundreds, if not thousands of communications from, you know, the thousands of applicants that we get. 
and there's just no way to respond to all of them personally. And so some of them aren't going to get responded to. It's not uh, any indication of a personal dislike. It's just that you can only do what you can do. So to the extent you cannot take it personally, I think that's really good advice. And the hope is that we adjust signaling over time to help decrease the amount of these communications that have to happen outside, right? Like we're meant, we're trying to like give applicants a way to show their preferences and not have to email everybody and live in this email world. Absolutely. Andrea, what are some other resources for applicants to learn more about programs and to plan their application strategy? So like we've said, I think multiple times, it's important to have an advisor. You, you know, can't be doing this in a vacuum of like your own knowledge because like you haven't been a part of residency yet. Um, but, you know, many of the changes that we just talked about are new for this year. And so everybody is learning together. And um, I think that that was some of the angst that happened around last year is that different advisors said different things. And was I put at a disadvantage? Um there's important resources for uh, like individual program websites are good to find like if they have certain requirements or restrictions. Um, the AMA Frida and AAMC Residency Explorer are also web, uh, tools that people can use to check alignment with um, both programs and kind of like historic data. Um, social media also has emerged as like another source. We're here on a podcast because people have the opportunity to like learn more, listen about things, you know, exploring those presences and what that means to them, especially from the resident perspective. Um, in terms of preparation for the, um, like, I, I think I've already communicated with a couple of people that are preparing to apply and their anxiety about all this, right? There is a worksheet on the ARIS website for the AMC that you can go and you can look what it looks like and what, the, what you're going to have to put in and you can start planning. Um, and you can have people read those little brief sent things that you're going to put in to describe your meaningful experiences and why you have geographic preferences. Look at it early so it's not like, a, oh my gosh, I haven't had anybody proofread this kind of stuff. But those are just some, I think, take-home points. I'm sure you guys have a couple that would be additive. <laughs> yeah, those are great. Emily, let's turn to you. Any other general advice for applicants uh, as we wrap up? Sure. I always tell our students, uh, it sounds like a little thing, but it's a big thing. Make sure your application's in on time. So at the very latest, including your letters, and think about there is some variability with when your letter writers will get their letters in, but make sure everything is in by September 27th, because that is timestamp for programs and it doesn't send a good uh, impression when, when you're in late and that's visible to us. In terms of personal statements, pass it around to people that you know who know you well, even if they're not in medicine, and make sure that it is clear, it is shorter than a page, and that it, the grammar and the syntax is is good because that, again, sends the wrong impression potentially to, to programs. And then beyond that, I would say, just as Andrea said multiple times, really think about what's most important to you with programs and specifically with geography, where you want to be. Um, and then the last piece of advice, I know this is hard, is to, to not overthink it and to relax, which often when you tell people to do that has the opposite effect. But um, this, is, this is really a time for you to figure out what program is most aligned with you. And that's our goal as well. Yeah, I that's all great advice. I agree 100%. I would add that every once in a while, we'll have people whose application is in on time, but not all their letters. And every once in a while, I'll talk to people and they'll say, well, you know, I, I, it's not my fault, right? I, I asked for the letter. Well, I would say you have got to be your own advocate. If you now, if you ask for the letter two days before, you know, September 27th, then that's on you. But if you ask for the letter a month or two in advance, 
And that, you know, you can tell, you can see if they've uploaded it. And if they haven't, you've got to be willing to advocate for yourself. It is okay to email that person and say, I'm so sorry to bother you. You know, I, I'm being told by my advisors that I need to have everything in by next week. And I noticed that the letter's still not there. Is there anything I can do to help? And I'll actually tell applicants, our own students, you, it's fine to offer to say, you know, if it would help, I'm happy to draft something for you to then edit and sign. I think most people will not take you up on that, but you can offer, right? And if they do take you up on it, that's just great for you because then most of what you, you can write your own letter, right? It's hard. It's really intimidating to do that. But, you know, it's something that I think all of us, as you get further along, when you're, you know, up for an award or promotion as a faculty member, you're almost always drafting your, I mean, chairs are not writing hundreds and hundreds of recommendation letters, right? So you're drafting your own letters for them. And that's a good practice to get if someone's willing. So don't let the fact that your letter writer hasn't uploaded it go by. If it's a week before September 27th and it's not up, you need to be contacting them and asking, you know, if they can please get that up. Any yeah, other thoughts? The, the, the please part is important. I know that I'm sure you guys have both been a part of this, but when I get a um, brief communication that is demanding of my time, um, it also, I, I understand that I'm, that I'm not on time. I understand there's a deadline. I appreciate the recommendation, but the tone of that communication is actually rather important um, because uh, I, I think that that's important to have somebody re read the email before you send it. Cause I think like there's a certain part of email communications that have the wrong tone. Yep. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, remember this person is writing you a letter that you don't get to see. <laughs> so you really want it to be good. Um, and you do not want to rub them the wrong way right before they write the letter. Um, all right. Anything else we didn't cover, Emily or Andrea, that you want to add? I think the only thing that I would add is that everybody's learning, right? Even in this year, program signals were new last year. Geographic preferencing was new last year. Meaningful experiences were new last year. Everybody has that experience. Now they're going to add to it and it's going to change a little bit. So nobody is the one person that knows all of how, how this is going to go. And every program depending on who's their leadership and their department and their milieu are going to implement it just slightly differently. So there's no right or wrong way. And we're going to learn, we're going to learn from our experiences and, you know, keep just trying to do better and make this application process a better thing. So while it can seem intimidating that we're changing things and I don't know exactly what's this going to go, ERAS hadn't been updated since like 1996. It was time for an update. Right. And with updates come some growing pains. And that's why we had the supplemental application pilot to really trial this and look at data. And the data is telling us that it's actually in an applicant's advantage to do this. So all that anxiety and nervousness about what to do, there's still it's still meant to be a benefit to applicants to help them make this process easier. Right. All right. Well, let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. I would love to hear from each of you something you'd recommend the audience check out for fun. Um, Emily, do you want to start? Sure. I know that you get a lot of book recommendations on here, but I'm going to add another one. So for me, one of the silver linings of the pandemic was I got really into audiobooks. And specifically, I've been using the Libby app, which allows you to listen to audiobooks for free. And it's just awesome. But one book that really resonated with me, and I've actually not only reread it, which is pretty rare for me, but I ordered it in print form, is called The Book of Joy. And it is by Douglas Abrams. And basically, he spent a weekend with the Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama and recorded the conversations. And it is just a beautiful book. And regardless of your political beliefs or your religious beliefs, it it is universal to all of us and highlights how we can find joy 
not just because of our, despite the circumstances we're in, but because of them. And I think it really resonates with us in medicine as well, given the the challenges we've experienced in the last couple of years. So highly recommend it. I hope other people like it as much as I did. That sounds awesome. Thanks, Emily. Andrea, how about you? Um, I am going to go maybe away from books. I was thinking about a book and then I was like, wait, I didn't actually get to read many books for fun when I was a resident. And so I was like, maybe that's kind of mean. Um, (laughs) so actually what I did think of and a lot of applicants actually, like I see this on their applications, but it's a game and I love strategy games. Um, and I play, um, if you haven't played it, Settlers of Catan is, um, one of the most, I think fun. I play it. I played it. My taught my kids when they were six. Um, and onwards, we have the Cities and Nights expansion. I played it on an app with the Seafarers and City Nights expansion. It goes crazy. Um, I find that it's like instead of doing meaningless, I'm at least playing a strategy game um, or sitting down with my kids playing a strategy game, having a lot of fun. And so I figured that's that's something that you can take time out and play it for an hour, and it's a lot of fun. Totally. I love that. The amount of hours that I spent playing settlers during medical school. I, I mean, the number, the things I could have done. If I, had not, I think you forgot. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just keep telling myself it's teaching me strategy. I'm using my brain, right? Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. It's a great, great game. And I agree with you. I think kids, you know, even as young as six, seven can definitely learn to play and enjoy it. Um, well, great. I'm, I'm going to continue the book tradition. I'm going to recommend a book that um, was recommended to me that is called Breath the new science of a lost art by James Nestor. And when this was first recommended to me, I thought there's no way this sounds crazy. I mean, what I don't need to read about breathing. I don't have time, you know, much like the uh, residents you mentioned, Andrew, I feel like I rarely have time. Um, but I, but it was recommended by my best friend. And so I thought, okay, well, he's going to ask me about it. So I have to at least give it a shot. And actually it was fascinating. And it, it is really this incredibly interesting story of, uh, not story, it's a nonfiction of of this book about a, um, all the different kind of ways in which breathing has been used throughout human history to really optimize health. And that we've lost a lot of that. We've lost a lot of those things that for thousands of years were used and even written about. And there are studies and there is science behind this. And it's really, really interesting. Since reading the book, I've started to do a variety of things. This is going to sound crazy, but believe it or not, taping your mouth closed at night has real health benefits. I have started doing that and it actually is really interesting and it has been beneficial. Um, Doing some uh, CO2, building up CO2 tolerance by doing some kind of controlled breath holding. There's a lot of things that are are really interesting in there. So I I think it's worth it. It's not that long. You can listen to it or read it. And I think it's a really, really fascinating book. So that's my recommendation. Andrea and Emily, thank you so much. Oh, you know what? Before, actually, there we have a listener. I almost forgot. We actually have a listener um, random recommendation by uh, Sahil Khan, who recommends uh, a book called Treasure Islands, Tax Havens and the Men Who Stole the World by Nicholas Shaxon. So uh, interesting book. Uh, We'll put a link in the show notes. And I have not read it yet, but uh, if you're interested, uh, Sahil says that's a fascinating book. All right, Emily and Andrea, thank you so much for your knowledge and for coming on the show. All right, thank you. All right, hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter, we are on Facebook, we are on Reddit, and we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. 
If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.